Thanks so much for listening to the Clifton Church of Christ sermon podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we hope if ever you're in Clifton, Texas, you'll stop by and say hello. We hope you enjoy this sermon. This week we're back in Romans chapter 8, and before we read, I want to tell you all, uh, while Catherine and I were at the retreat, there was one afternoon where we had a window of time that was for us to, to do what we want to do, free time. And I asked Catherine, I said, what do you want to do? She said, you know, I can't remember the last time I got to go to like a store without our kids. So we just went to a store and we were just going to walk around, you know, isn't that once you become a parent, things like that are just the best, you know, very great things. And uh, while we were there, we were, she was looking at something. A lady walks up with an iPad and says, could I ask y'all about your phone plan? And of course, what did we do? You know, we looked at each other and we were like, all right, which one of us is going to be the person who says, Sorry, we're not really interested in that. You know, you get the phone call. Would you like to buy some home warranty? You know, like, okay, bye, you know. But this was a person in front of us, so we kind of looked at each other, and she started talking, and, and Catherine said, uh, you know, we, we have this phone plan. And she said, well, how much do you all pay a month? Catherine said this number, and she said, well, what if I told you I could give you all brand new iPhones for free, and your bill will be $30 less a month? We looked at each other, and we were like, well, Where's the catch? And she, no catch. It's, you know, she says, that's the deal. Okay, so we got new iPhones and we got a new you know, phone plan. And what I remember is while she was filling out all the information, I was just drilling her with questions in a nice way, but just being like, so do you work for Target? Do you work for AT&T? Do you work for, we're talking and all this. And what I remember telling her was I said, you know what? I'm envious of you because you didn't have to sell a thing. You offered us a cheaper deal. You know, we're paying one fit. We were paying $115 a month for our phone plan. Now we're paying $85 a month for a phone plan. There's nothing to sell there. That's a great deal. You know what I mean? There's no, there's no, oh, I don't know. Should we do this? <laughs> like, would you like $30 more a month? Okay. My point is, and I've said this before, sometimes one of my biggest pet peeves as a preacher and as a minister of the gospel of Christ is that we as ministers and preachers and evangelists feel this desire and this need to be salesmen or saleswomen of of the gospel. And part of me is like, I'm not supposed to be a salesperson for this. This is the gospel of Christ. I'm supposed to say, this is the good news. And whether you want to receive it or not is out of my control. Not, well, let me, how do I twist this message of the gospel to make it sound extra appealing, to make it sound extra flashy? Now, now the, the gospel, it has a sunroof. Ooh, oh, now I want the gospel. You know, that's not, that's not my job. But over and over, there are people out there who the way that they're going to try and convince you to decide to give your life to Christ is by selling Christianity. And usually this is what it looks like. If you become a Christian, your life will become better and good things will happen to you. Now, I know through my years of study and through faith that I do believe that when Christ says, I came to give you life and that you may have it abundantly, I believe that. But I know that that doesn't necessarily look like what most people think of when they think of better and good. And what will happen is for many people, they say, that sounds great. $30 more a month, a better life, good things. That sounds nice. I'll sign up. And what happens for many, many people? Their lives are just as hard as everybody else's. What's the point of tithing? And what's the point of showing up and giving up my, sat my Sunday mornings when I could be, you know, grilling something or relaxing or sleeping in? What's the point of giving that up if it, it's not any better? Okay? That's what I hear people say. And part of what I think 
many of us go through, if you weren't raised in the church, if you're someone who's thinking about being a Christian, is I thought the point of becoming a Christian was all about the good things that were supposed to come into my life. And why does it feel like I have just as much struggle? Or sometimes it might feel like I have even more. And last week when we finished Romans 8, verse 17, he said, you are now sons and daughters of God, and you will receive an inheritance. You will be co-heirs. And I can picture us Christians being like, here we go. Inheritance language is good stuff. This is the good things. And then in verse 17, he says, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we might also share in his glory. And so you can imagine that what Paul has said is, yeah, you hear me talking about this word inheritance, these good things, but I also know for many of you who are reading it are saying, Paul, inheritance sounds great and all, but I'm sitting in the struggle right now. What about that? So let's turn. Romans 18, you can turn in your Bibles or your scripture journals. Uh, oh, look, I put 17 at the beginning of it. I thought I did. I did. There it is, 17. But we're going to start reading in 18, and then we're going to read this passage, and we're going to talk about it. And the question I want you to think about is, okay, Drew, I've heard about the inheritance. I've heard about all the good things that Christ is going to do for me, but why does it feel like I'm not experiencing any of that? Why does it feel like my life is constantly full of struggle? I consider, starting in verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, God, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Now, there are two things in this passage that are incredibly heavy, confusing theological questions. I am not up here today to teach a theology class. If you'd like to discuss these deep, what on earth does it mean when it says God subjected creation to suffering, or what does that mean? Come to Wednesday night class and let's talk about it. But let's not, let's not get caught up at here. Some of you are like, amen, thank goodness. Okay, I don't want to get caught in that. Um, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. It's a great word, the first fruits of the Spirit. What he's saying is, we've gotten the Spirit. We have it. But it's not the whole picture of someday when the new heavens and the new earth are together. The level of spirit that's going to be there then will be amazing. But we have those first fruits, the best. You know, first fruits isn't just the things you get first. It's when you take all the offering and you get the best of it. Okay? We have the best of it already. Uh, Sorry, I lost my spot. Um, uh, We ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes in what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And 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 He who searches our hearts, God, God has many names in Scripture, but here's a cool one you can add to your repertoire. You know, we call him Lord, we call him Yahweh, we call him all sorts of things. And yet here, the word that Paul uses is, He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. 
And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn from among brothers, from among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Like I said, if you want to have a theology class, come to Wednesday night and I'll tell you just how much I don't understand this. But we can talk about it. But you see throughout all this, if, you, if, you, if you're looking at the whole picture of this, the words that are being repeated over and over from start to finish are suffering and glory. Suffering and glory. He ends by saying he also glorified. So here I'm going to have two main points and I'm going to try and flesh them out. But the first thing that we should see here is Paul is still in a section of Romans 8 where he's articulating just what happens when we receive the Spirit. The Spirit that we have last week, we talked about how it, the Spirit tells us that we are adopted sons. We talked about how it allows us to cry out to God, Abba, Father, and an intimacy that we have. A new thing that Paul is bringing up is that in our struggles, the Spirit is at work. Uh, we see it here, and, and it's really interesting, this, all this language of creation, groaning, and it, then it talks about, but we also, like creation, we ourselves, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adopt, adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Here I want to describe something that in my mind makes perfect sense, and I hope it makes sense to you. How many of you have ever been in a conversation like this where one of the people in the conversation is clearly bothered about something and the other person is saying, what's wrong, honey? Now, by the way, in my family, I'm the one that goes, what's wrong, Catherine? Uh, mostly because I have no problem at all like trying to constantly articulate what they're going through my head, what's going through my head, but Catherine doesn't like articulating it until she actually feels like she has it. In most Marriages, it's the other way around. The wife has no problem talking about what they're feeling and saying, honey, what are you feeling? Tell me, I want to know what you're thinking. What are you thinking right now? And the guys are like, I'm not thinking about anything. <laughs> no, but seriously, like, like, what's going through your mind right now? Nothing. Uh, I'm really not thinking about anything. Lunch? But in our relationship, it's a little different, okay? But anyway, my point is, is that you've been in those conversations before where you can tell one person is distraught is hurting and the other person is saying what's wrong and all you can tell is that they're like I am hurting but I don't know why I feel and, and by the way in our world there's so much in our world now of people who are going through a level of stress that is unbearable going through a level of depression that they've never experienced before uh, there are so many studies that show that with the creation and increasing of social media not, not that it's the, the devil, I'm not saying that, but just so many statistics that show that there was a time where kids would go to school and feel tons of pressure to be cool and to be liked and to be fun, and then they would go home and get to turn it all off. That does not exist anymore. You have to stay cool, stay relevant, stay fun, because you've got to do it all day on your phone. There is no off button. So the level of anxiety and depression that all people are feeling from things like that if you were to ask them, what's going on? What's wrong? All they're going to say, and this is the word I want to use to describe, is that there is an ache in their heart. What it is, they can't articulate it. What's going on, I don't know, but it's an aching. And at the word that, I, that Paul is using that I like is he calls it a groaning, okay? 
And the imagery that he uses that is so powerful, and I'm going to get to it more later, but he, he uses the imagery of childbirth and the groaning of childbirth. Like I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get there in a second. But what he says is, is when we have these aches in our heart, these things that we can't express, the gift of the Spirit is that the Spirit within us is able to communicate to God those things we can't articulate. There's a great song I grew up, you know, part of me is like, should I just sing the whole song with them? But I won't. But the chorus is, so listen to our hearts. Hear our spirits sing. We will use the words we know to tell you what an awesome God you are. But words are not enough to tell you of our love, so listen to our hearts. Okay? It's a great song. You can also change the words of that song a little bit for Romans, and you can say, how do, how do I explain? How do I describe? Not the love of God, but you could say, how do I explain the brokenness I feel, the hurt, the struggle, the anxiety, the depression, the stress, all this stuff. How do I explain it? How do I describe it? But we will use the words we know to describe the ache. But when the words are insufficient, we are blessed that we have a spirit that God has given us, that lives within us, that is able to communicate. And, and we can say, God, listen to our hearts. Another thing that we see that is probably the most quoted thing from the section I just read is a powerful promise in Romans 28. Many of you have probably heard this and have probably memorized this. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So the second thing that we see in the midst of our struggles is that Paul makes a very bold promise that God is working for the good in our struggles. One thing that we do, and we have a problem with this, I'll use another analogy. Uh, one of my love languages is words of affirmation. I like when people say, Drew, you did a great job with that. And one thing that Catherine and I in our marriage that we laugh about all the time is there are times where I do something like I'll do the dishes and um, I'm waiting for her to go, Drew, thanks for doing the dishes. By the way, which she does a lot. But sometimes early in our marriage, she'd be like, why am I going to compliment you on something that's like a good husband should do? Okay? You know? If I say, if I say hey, I got up a little extra early and helped the kids. Great, you met the bare minimum of being a husband. Okay? What, you, what do you want? A badge? You know? An award? A trophy? Um, and I'm like, well, no, but, you know, I do like thank yous, you know? But anyway, we do this thing with life where when we go through life, we, when good things happen in our life, we're like, oh, well, duh, God. I deserve that. You know, it's my right to have a good life. I mean, look at me. Have you seen what I'm doing for you, God? Of course I, I deserve these good things. But there is nowhere written where it says that when you go through life, we deserve to have good things happen to us. We are going to have good things. We are going to have bad things. But here's what we do know is that even though we have no guarantee on what the flip of the coin that's going to happen with life, we do know that we have a God who is going to work for our good. Life is not going to work for our good, but God will, okay? So the thing that I want you to hear, let's go back to this. Our present struggles, the things that the people in this church were going through, the things that you're going through, they do not have the last word. The last word is, is that God will work for good. So let's use this pregnancy analogy. When I, I don't know how many of you have been present for the birth of a child, and especially the birth of a child where there was not an epidural, okay? But there are noises, right? 
I actually remember when I was a kid, my mom would change the channel or switch it off if we were watching a movie or a TV show where they, someone was being depicted as having a baby. Because my mom didn't really feel like it was appropriate for me to hear that. And in some ways, it's kind of this, hey, let's not talk about this because that's an intimate, vulnerable place where literally the woman is going through probably one of the most excruciating things they will ever go through. Paul is talking about your Christian life like a woman in childbirth. And what he's saying is, is he's saying, I know and I don't want to convince you that what you're going through feels good and is fun. And no, oh, by the way, Paul has never had a baby. So he's, you know, it's kind of like, okay, Paul, you know, I, good luck making this analogy. But what he's trying to say is, why on earth do women have a baby and then say they might do it again? And it's because at the end, there is a child, hopefully, God willing. There is something there that makes you say this suffering isn't pointless because there's a good thing that comes at the end. Like I said, God willing, not for everyone, but we are so grateful when it does. And what he's saying is creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth all along, waiting for the day when the children of God will be revealed. And we ourselves experience a groaning, an ache that we have. And the reason that we're able to endure the suffering is because we know that at the end of the suffering, there is glory. In the same way that a woman is able to endure the pains of childbirth because she knows at the end, there is a child. There is glory. Does that make sense? One of the stories uh, that's one of my most, one of my favorite uh, experiences I had as a youth minister was we had a, a, youth, a trip that we took to Nicaragua every year. And it was the trip. You know, everybody and their dog in the youth group was like, when am I old enough to go to Nicaragua? And one year, there was political rioting in Nicaragua a couple months before, and we had to change plans. And I remember for some of my seniors, it was like, this is going to ruin my life, you know? This is going to be the end of my summer. And what I remember was I heard a, a talk recently from a, a guy named Braden Snyder where he shared, one of his stories was he, he talked about Jonah, and he talked about how God wrecked Jonah's plans. By the way, if ever I preach on Jonah, just pretend like you're not listening right now because uh, I'll probably use this again. But how God wrecked Jonah's plans because he had a better plan for him, okay? And his takeaway point was, if ever you're in a season where you feel like God has wrecked your plans, try to have the perspective of, okay, God, I hope it's because you have a different plan you want me to go up, be a part of, okay? I remember... Unlike Jonah, when that, when that happened where our Nicaragua trip got canceled, I tried over and over to say to myself and to say to the group, guys, our plans got wrecked. There's no doubt about it. But we're not going to pout about it. What we're going to do is we're going to try and say, okay, God, I trust you that as a result of this wrecked plan, there is going to be a way that you're still going to do some good things. And I, what we did instead was we went on a trip called Wilderness Trek, this wilderness expedition thing. And I, you've heard me reference it before. Aside, I, it's in the top five of most influential things I've ever done in my life. And when I message the people that went on that trip, they will tell you over and over and over that that trip really changed their life in many, many ways, okay? And so I'm able to say, not, oh, I'm so glad we didn't go to Nicaragua. That's not the takeaway. The takeaway is, look, God was still able to work for good. In the story of Joseph in the Bible, Joseph is kind of a, a brat, 
You know, he's the spoiled little kid who's like bragging to his brothers like, hey, I'm dad's favorite. Look at this cloak that dad made me. It's amazing. Y'all are, look at me. Look at my cloak. And they're all annoyed with him. And what do they do? They say, let's kill him. And I know, no, no, okay, not, let's not kill him. Let's sell him into slavery. So much better, you know? And they send him into slavery. And then in slavery, he's trying to do the best he can. And then his boss's wife accuses him of trying to seduce her. Then he goes to jail and he does the best he can in jail. And then constantly he's finding himself where things are happening. And yet at the very end of the story, whenever his, the people of Israel are, or the tribe of his family is about to die, they come to him and they say, they don't recognize who he is, for those of you who don't know the story, and they're asking for food. And when he reveals to them, hey, I'm your brother, the one that you sold into slavery, they're so sorry. But guess what he says? Because of his perspective, he says in Genesis 50, 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. That right there is only something that someone who has a deep trust in God and a deep perspective in God's ability to work through tough times can say that. I don't think I have the faith to be able to say something like that yet, but I hope I can get there. And so my call and my hope to you is that whenever struggles surround you in your life, know that it doesn't compare with the rescue and the glory that's coming at the end of the story. I think about whenever the chariots of Egypt are coming down on the people of Israel and they're at the Red Sea and they're all there and they're saying, we're going to die, God. We've got the chariots of Egypt on one side and we've got the Red Sea on the other side. We're surrounded by struggles right now. Death is at every corner. And what God says is, I want to change your perspective. Trust me that I'm going to find a way for this to work out for good. Okay? Whenever you in your life are struggling with anxiety, depression, when, when you're in that situation with a family drama where you're like, I just don't see how this is ever going to get better. And it's, it's making me ache and the Spirit is interceding for me. What Paul would want you to know is, and what I want you to hear me say is, that the text does not say that those difficult times are good things. The text does not say that oh, well, you should be really happy and throw a party that you're going through struggles and that things are bad. Never hear the text say that. But do listen to the promise of Paul about God, that God can and will work for a good result at the end of that story. Something that uh, I'll finish up by saying is, and, and I, I tried to think of a specific example, um, but I'm going to just try and stay broad. But whenever... I see stories of a person whose son was killed by a drunk driver. And then that person makes it their life's work to try and help people who are alcoholics. That is God working for a good result. Now, did, are we going to say, oh, I'm so glad that person lost their son? Never. But God can work for good. When I hear stories of women who cannot bear children and who end up adopting 10, 12 children, running an, a, a children's home, Am I going to say, thank goodness that that woman couldn't have a child? Never. You'll never hear us say that. And don't say that. But what you can say and trust is you can know, look at how good our God is, is that in the struggle, in the suffering, in the brokenness, God can still work and will work for that to be a good thing. So I want to encourage you that we have a Savior who experienced pain and struggle. 
And we don't celebrate the crucifixion and enjoy that he went through pain, but we do have a new perspective on death. We do have a new perspective on struggle. We do have a new perspective on everything we go through in our life because just like for our Savior Jesus, God was able to take struggle and work it for his good purposes. And he can do that in your life too if you're willing to trust him, if you're willing to have that perspective change. So my final call to you is if anybody has any prayer requests, an ache, let us help you pray. If any of you would like to decide to give your life to Christ, we want to do that where we want to talk to you about deciding to be baptized and doing that at this time or, or we can talk later in the week. But one thing I want, to hear, I want you to hear me say, if you are a Christian, someone who has trust in the hope and the glory of God, when you face struggle, you need to be someone who has a new perspective. You should not react the same way as someone who does not have hope. You should react as someone who is broken and hurt, but can say, you know what, though? I have a trust that in the midst of my wrecked plan, God has the ability to work it for a good result. Because those who do not have faith in Christ cannot see that perspective. But you can. And when you're there with them, when you're the Ruth with the Naomi, when you're the Naomi with the Ruth, and you can look at that and say, I believe God can find a way to work through this, you will help change people's lives. Let's stand and sing this song.